nothing to do with anything, so don't think it's like a great lead-in to whatever message I'm getting ready to do, but I thought I'd share it with you anyway. I was at the airport, and I, I had, I had the, one of the most awkward encounters I've ever had, which is saying a lot for me, because I end up getting in really awkward moments with people. But I'd gone through security at the Oklahoma City Airport, and I was going to Atlanta for a few days, and I... Uh, I went through all my things, and I put them all in the, my little deal. You know, some, Rob and some of these guys that travel all the time, you know, those, you just do all these things. Shoes off, belts off, you know. You're half naked, and you're putting your stuff out there. And I get my stuff back on as I'm coming through the line, and I look over, and the guy that was in front of me is putting on my shoes. <laughs> like he's literally putting them on. And uh, so I'm, part of me thinks that's really awesome, actually. And I didn't know if he was stealing my shoes or if he just wasn't paying attention so I thought well I'll put on his shoes and we'll just see what happens right because I thought why why even if it's embarrassment you know maybe I don't want to embarrass the guy I mean he was he wasn't you know he, was, he wasn't my he was small I didn't think it was any way so I was like I'm just gonna put on that guy's shoes too so I put I started putting on his shoes I had on tennis shoes and he had on they were not anything like mine, but they were tennis shoes nonetheless, and they were small. So here I am, squeezing into my shoes, and then all of a sudden, the guy looks over and goes, hey, you're putting on my shoes. And I go, dude, you were putting on my, I was like, you were putting on my shoes. I was just trying to, whatever. He's like, those are my shoes. Can I have them? I was like, yeah. And I look over, I go, you have my shoes on. I am not making this stuff up. He was like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. And he took them off. I was like, he's wearing my shoes, and he accuses me of stealing his. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. One of them. I just thought that was so funny, and I, I don't have, it has nothing to do with anything. So, but such is the weirdness sometimes in my life. And so anyway, I, I didn't get to take anybody else's shoes. But I, now I've really got my eyes out, you know, because you never know. You never know what's going to happen over there. I mean, I'm not worried about a computer or anything like that. It's your sneakers or your belt or whatever you got, so... So anyway, nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, uh, this morning's message is actually a promise that I'm keeping, all right? So um, let's see, it was, it must have been a month and a half ago, maybe almost two months ago, someone came up to me after church and they said, hey, they said, Trevor, I, I, would, I would really love for you to preach sometime on communion. I know we do it every, every month, and, and I would love for you to teach on really what that means. We're coming from a kind of a, a, a varied background of churches, and I've always had a lot of questions, and I thought, well, you know, there's just something we can talk about one-on-one, and, and uh, you know, I could share with them, and, and I actually did something like this a couple of years ago when we were going through a different series called What I Believe, but, but this person said, well, I've just, I've had this conversation with several people, and I would just love for you to teach on it, so I just thought, you know what, I told, told this person, I said, the next Sunday that we're doing communion, that we're not in the middle of a series, I promise that I will just take a Sunday morning and I, we will look at Jesus' words about what we're actually doing. And so this morning is, is a bit of a promise kept. It's a, it's a promise that I think really matters to all of us because sometimes our life in church becomes very habitual, very ritualistic, and we, we forget the truth behind the things that we do. Even the things like coming to worship and opening our Bibles and studying together or the things like communion or baptism. And we, these things that we may have grown up with or that maybe you grew up with that you've just sort of done all your life. They become hollow. And so sometimes I think it's really great to just stop for a moment and rediscover the theological truth behind what we do. Because this meal that we're going to share in this morning is perhaps one of the most amazing, theologically profound events that takes place in the life of the church. And it actually calls us to several things. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to explore Jesus' words um, as a way of looking at this meal that we're going to share 
and talking about what it means for us, what we're actually doing and participating in, and, and really as a call and a reminder of our own relationship with Christ and the fact that church and our Christian lives can so quickly go from passion to habit, right? To go from passion to habit. And before you know it, here we are walking in the middle of lives that just have lost fire. We've forgotten the meaning behind these things that we do. Happens in worship all the time. We sing songs and we stand up there and we stand here and we just sing, but we're not thinking about what we're actually proclaiming. We're trying to think if we like this melody or that, or was this too loud, or we didn't have this, or we should have done, instead of going, God, these words that I am calling out to you, reciting to you, have meaning and power, and sometimes my church existence becomes really ritual, really um, kind of a habit. And then I think we fall into passionless lives. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to explore this through uh, really Jesus' words as recounted by Paul, the book of, uh, of Corinthians. And so um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, because as always when we open Scripture, we've got to understand it with its historical context and its cultural context, because it, it means more um, to, to where we're going. We always need to look at Scripture in its, in its right context. So this meal was actually, it was actually... And it began as an incredibly important part of Jewish life. And Jesus stepped into the middle of it and really flipped it upside down. The last week of Jesus' life, a week that we called Holy Week or Passion Week, that was last, you know, kind of seven days of the life of Christ that begins with Palm Sunday and ends with the resurrection, right? Um, a lot of great events happen in, in, uh, in history during that week. We talked a lot about during Easter and crucifixion, all those kind of things that go on. Well, Thursday night was the celebration of the Passover feast, and the Passover feast was a, 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 a ritual, a celebration that took place in the life of Israel to remember God's deliverance and God literally passing over them and, and, and their time in Egypt and sparing them from their sin, and it's, a, it's an amazing story if we had time to get into it. But they're celebrating and remembering the Passover, God's deliverance um, of the, uh, from the hands of Pharaoh. And, and the, the disciples are going with Jesus into Jerusalem to basically, during the time of Passover, to celebrate Passover. And they don't really know all that's getting ready to unfold in the next few days. You've got to keep that in the back of your mind. The disciples aren't, they don't have the hindsight that we have in Scripture to be able to say, oh, Jesus is riding down on a donkey, and in five days he's going to do this, and he's going to get handed over and beaten and crucified. And he's going to be raised from the dead. The disciples are just following Jesus. And they're headed over to celebrate the Passover. And they say, what should we do? What kind of preparations do we need to make? And so Jesus gives them some some very specific instructions on that Thursday. He says, you're going to find a man carrying a water jar and all these things. And go tell him that the Lord wants you to do this. And so they follow all these instructions. And they begin to prepare the Passover meal. And that night, the disciples and Jesus, they just gather together. And they share this meal, uh, a very traditional meal. Um, kind of celebratory meal of reliving the promises of God. And when that meal is over, right, and real famous, Jesus washes their feet. You remember that whole scenario? He says that he, he takes the disciples and he takes this bread and, and wine or fruit of the vine that was left over and he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, which we'll kind of get into those names in just a second. And he talks about this verses that we're going to look at today in Corinthians about breaking the bread and and, and we're going to explore what that means. But that's how we got to where we are. And then he commands the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. Um, the Lord's Supper is one of two, all right, two uh, ordinances or decrees that most Protestant churches believe were handed down from Jesus. Now, for those of you with Catholic backgrounds, you'll say, what? No, there's seven. Actually, there's two that were given right from Jesus, baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper or communion. Those are the two that literally came from 
the mouth of Christ. The Catholic Church adds in a few others that have to do with tradition and some other things. Not wrong or right. They just, the most Protestant churches just say that there's two that Jesus handed down, and baptism and, and communion. Communion goes by a lot of different names. They all mean the same thing. Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. Communion comes from the Greek word uh, koinonia, which just means kind of uh, community. Uh, and Eucharist is just a fancy term that comes from a Greek word, Eucharisteo, which just means uh, to give thanks. So they're, they're just, they all mean the same thing. They all are pointing us to this table. Now, we'll tell you this. There is more controversy surrounding this table throughout history than almost any other kind of church activity. All right, this church, the church has been divided over this issue time and time and time again. The church has split over all kinds of things about how many times you should do it, what actually takes place, what kind of elements need to be, what do you do with them when you're done. I mean, they use fancy words like transubstantiation and consubstantiation and things that happen to the, I mean, just all kinds of stuff, right? But what we're going to look at today is that I think, as often happens with the church, it's just not that complicated. That there is a beauty and a almost a um, this sort of beautiful truth wrapped up in what we're going to share in today that I'm going to show you from text that is lost in all of our arguments about how many times we've done. I've been in more church board meetings that argued and devoted on how many times, once a month, twice a month, people get out angry and leaving. We should do every month. I mean, just we miss so much about tr- the truth of this meal when we look at how the things that divide us um, really kind of funnel into it. So this morning, just to give you a little background, that's where we're going to be. We're going to simplify it down like I usually do with text because I think Scripture is just beautifully simple. Um, so this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm going to read it to you a little bit, and then we're going to unpack it because there's some really cool things that we do when we celebrate this meal, some things that we proclaim and some things that we do, and then there's some things that are being affirmed, and then there's a word of warning that I want you to pay attention to. And I don't want you to think that this is just some kind of lighthearted little message. I mean, this is huge truth that moves us from habit and ritual to passionately discovering what it is that Jesus did for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be, and verse 23 is where we're Before we do that, let's take a moment and let's just pray. God, we thank you for the moments to gather in this place, and uh, Lord, I'll be the first to confess that oftentimes my church life becomes really uh, habitual. Uh, Lord, I just, I do things because we've always done them that way. And Lord, sometimes the meaning of, of these things gets lost, even when it comes to reading scripture, even when it comes to worship. Father, the, the truth and the power behind the words that I sing are, uh, are sometimes lost. Lord, so many of our songs are scripture that we are singing back to you. Yet their words are lost in melodies that I like or don't like or drums that are this or whatever. And uh, Lord, we confess that. So this morning as we get ready to share in this meal, turn our thinking upside down a little bit. Just kind of up, give it a little bit of an upheaval and uh, challenge us, Lord. Take just a moment and pray in your own heart. Just ask God to, to move in you, maybe to help you rediscover him this morning. Maybe that's a, a great way of looking at this. Lord, help me rediscover uh, you this morning. Take a moment, just pray for someone around you. Just pray that God would move in them. He would just meet them right in the middle of their life this morning.
Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. Amen. So the book of Corinthians, actually both of them, but really paying attention to the first letter is a really interesting book in the Bible because like a lot of the churches Paul had his hand in planting, they had some serious issues. I mean, Paul would, would come into a region, he would share the gospel, he'd plant a church, he'd leave some people in charge, and then the church was trying to do life on its own. And you've got to remember, these are first century Christians. I mean, these are people that are just meeting Christ. There's no, your grandma was a Christian, and her grandma was a Christian, your grandpa was a Christian, and we've been, you know, we've been Methodist for 48 years or whatever. There was none of that. It was new life in Christ and people learning how to do it together. And so oftentimes what happened is people would come in with crazy ideas, or they'd be telling you to do this, and so the church would end up kind of getting caught up in a bunch of Things that didn't matter. You know, sounds kind of familiar with where we are today, but that's really just the truth. And so a lot of Paul's letters were writing to correct things that were going on. The letter in the first Corinth, to the first Corinthians, or the, the church in Corinth, was really a, a letter about saying, what is wrong with you guys? I left you this perfect gospel, this truth, and somewhere along the way, you have perverted it into a division of who you follow and who you trust and where you're going, and you've messed up these things that I left in your hands and you believe the world. The first uh, three chapters are really kind of devoted to this divisions that are being created in the church. And some people were saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Christ, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos. And Paul's going, what is wrong with y'all? You're missing the entire point of the gospel. Well, much of the letter of 1 Corinthians was written about love and unity, right? We get that famous marriage text coming out of here, love is it. Well, the whole book is written about unity and what really matters, the truth behind what really matters. Well, 1 Corinthians 11 is really no different because the church had taken this truth, this table, this idea of communion, the Lord's Supper, and they had turned it into a ritualistic feast, which often include drunkenness and all kinds of problems. And they had perverted the truth of God and basically exchanged it for a lie. What Paul is basically doing in this text is he's reminding them of the simple truth of what Jesus said. And I think this is a great picture for what we do with church all the time. Jesus gives this simple gospel truth, and we pervert it with all of, not intentionally, but with all the things that we want to add into it, or justify it with, or sprinkle over it, or whatever. And the next thing you know, we've got something totally different than what Jesus actually commands us to. And so sometimes as a church, we have to peel away all the things we've added to the gospel, all the things we've added to church, all the things, and just peel it away and say, God, what are you really doing? And this is what Paul's trying to do. He's saying, listen, all the things that you've added and tried to make it better and, and you've done all these things and you've, you've perverted it. So just stop. Listen to what Jesus said and get back to gospel truth, which is really my passion for the church as a whole is that we would quit perverting, right, the gospel with what we want it to look like and actually focus on what Jesus is saying and see, how that doesn't, see if that doesn't just absolutely just turn our lives upside down. And it will because the gospel is, uh, is pretty radical that way. So this is what, what Paul says. He says, and, and the first seven verses there in 17 through 22 are really kind of, uh, kind of explaining the, the mess-ups that have been happening. But let's start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord, Paul's saying, uh, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll come to 27 in a minute. Pretty famous words, right? You've probably heard me say them if you come to church on the first Sunday of any month when we do communion. You've probably heard me say these words. You've probably heard them at some point in time in your church life. Maybe you've even read them, right? They're really famous. And, and they're really simple. Jesus
Jesus doesn't do a whole lot of really expounding on this. He doesn't talk about the intricacies and the depths and what kind of bread you had to use or if the, you know, the juice had to be alcohol or if it didn't and if it was grape, what color. I mean, none of those things. He's just sitting at the table with his, with his disciples and they've got bread and they've got wine and he basically looks at them and he, he performs this meal as a way of reminding them what's going to come. Because the disciples don't have any idea that in just a few short hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and killed. They don't see that. They don't know that. They've heard Jesus talk about it, but it's not making any sense. In fact, it won't register for another half a day or so, maybe even a full day, before they truly begin to experience and understand what Jesus was getting at. But Jesus' words are very simple. And and as I began to look at this text and think about how I wanted to kind of work through this this morning, I I realized that there's there's really some some very short, four very short things in there that I think that we need to understand that we do when we celebrate communion together. The first one is that we are remembering, right? Now, this is pretty obvious. I mean, Jesus says that when you do this, when you share this bread, when you share this cup, you are doing this in remembrance of me. Now, the disciples, they're not getting all this because Jesus had yet to die. He'd yet to go to the cross. They're still standing in his presence. This is a word for the church. It's a word for what the disciples will be walking through in the future, and it's a word for you and for me. That when we take this meal, the obvious thing that we're doing is we're remembering what Jesus has done, both his death and his life. And all too often, it's easy in our church experience to forget or maybe just focus on the death and the life of Christ around really important church holiday times like Christmas when we celebrate Jesus' birthday and and, uh, Easter when we celebrate the resurrection. But this table is designed for us to remember the life and death of Jesus. And not just that Jesus loved you enough to die on a cross, to take all of your sins and die for them so that you might have eternal life. But Jesus' life, the gospel life, the life that walked this earth and touched the lepers. And guys, the life that gave the the blind man sight and that fed 5,000, that cured people, that healed people, that touched people that the world wouldn't go near. The life that he called the disciples to live, the life that he calls the church to. We're called to remember, to remember the life of Jesus, how he lived. We're also called to remember how he died. In total surrender and total humility, Jesus gave his life so that you might have life, both abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven. Oftentimes we think eternal life begins when we die. The truth is in Jesus Christ, eternal life begins today. So the first thing that we need to pay attention to is that when we do this, we're remembering those truths. Remembering those truths, Jesus' life and Jesus' death. The second thing that we're really doing is we're uniting. Those first seven verses that I didn't read, 17 through 22, Paul uses the words come together five different times. The whole letter to first the church of Corinthian church is about unity. It's a reminder that this is something that we do together. This table, while totally individual, when you take the elements, is meant to be celebrated in community. I mean, it's really a picture of our life in Jesus Christ, that we are involved in deep, personal love relationship with Jesus, that we live out in a community context. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Read scripture. The Christian life was meant to be lived in community. It was meant to be shared together, walked through together. All through scripture, we see believers sharing their homes, sharing their lives, sharing their struggles. And maybe thinking about, as Bruce and Elvin mentioned, sharing their heartache and their brokenness sharing their redemption, their healing, sharing their lives. 
Communion is that picture of the Christian life lived out. That what we get from Jesus is individual in terms of our redemption, but how we live it is proclaimed in a community. It's a really cool picture if you really think about it. There's a chapter earlier, Paul's kind of explaining some things to the church, and he says, I want you to remember this. There is one loaf, one bread that we share together. And he's talking about the unity that all believers have in common. We're united when we take communion. Literally, we are united with believers all over the place. Both the saints that have gone before us, because we're all sharing in the same bread, bread of life. And those that celebrate this around the world, followers of Christ all over the world. And if you've never traveled to another place where you're gathered with other believers in a different culture, right, then maybe this has lost a little bit on you. But when you sit somewhere in another culture with another group of Christ followers and they share the same exact meal, we're reminded of what unites us. All too often as a church, we focus on what divides us. You know, what you can dance, you can't dance, you sing this, you don't use instruments, you do this, you do that, I don't do this. We have to be this building, you gotta use these chairs. We, you know, we, we talk about what divides us. Even down to our theology, I believe about this, you don't believe about this. We, can, we talk about those things. And I've been all over the world, 30-something countries at this point in time that I've had the privilege of seeing believers in. And what I've realized in the middle of all that is what unites us is so much greater than what actually separates us. And very seldom in any country does it ever come up what denomination you are, what little branch of Christians you know, do you a part of. Everywhere I go, it's, are you a believer? Except here. And as a Western culture, we focus so much more on our divisions than we do on what unites us. There is no more uniting moment than what we do at this table it goes across all boundaries regardless what you want to believe about what kind of things we should use and some of the exact theological words that go into what this the reality is is that the call is the same and we are gathered together with believers across denominations across lines across countries across languages across borders you know i I shared in communion with a a group of of hungarian gypsies and we were separated by a couple of different languages because we had translators that didn't, couldn't translate English to Hungarian. They had a translator who could tra- translate English to Russian. Another translator could translate Russian to Hungarian. You want to talk about a mess. So we're talking between three people. But when we came to actually sitting down with this little Hungarian church and taking communion, no one needed to speak. No one needed to say a word. And it was crazy powerful. When we share this meal, we're united together. It's community. We're united with believers across the globe. We're united with those that have come, come before us. But it's also a picture of Christ's sacrifice for you. So we're remembering we are united. All right? We are also proclaiming. At the end of that, or verse 25, I think Jesus says that when we take this uh, cup, when we do this in remembrance of him, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim. You know that when we share in this meal, when we take communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. It is a proclamation of the gospel. Because there are th- certain things that we are saying. When Jesus is looking at the disciples, he's saying that when you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord, capital L, Jesus deity, death. You are proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. Again, the disciples, man, this, is, this stuff is reeling for them. 
but for you and I, being able to look back and say what Jesus did on the cross and how God raised him from the dead. When we share this meal, it is a, it's a proclamation of the deity of Christ. And sometimes that gets lost on us and well, and you've heard me talk about this before, that we've turned our, our relationship with Christ, our idea of God, into this sort of friendship picture. And while that's certainly not wrong, sometimes we forget the absolute truth behind the, re- the reverence that should be approached with the deity of God, that God is all God, and you are all not. And then when we stand in the presence of Almighty, Holy God, we have to take that seriously. All through Scripture, anybody that came in the presence of God, a couple of things happened. One, they either died, right? Or two, they were knocked to their knees. God's deity is not something that we mess around with. It's not a game to be played. And what Jesus is saying is you are proclaiming the lordship, the lordship of Christ. Now, giving Jesus the lordship of your life means that I surrender myself to who you are. Right? It's one thing to say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. It's another one to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And I surrender my heart to you. When we take communion, we are proclaiming the deity of God, deity of Christ. Sometimes that's lost on us. And that's why when we stand up here and I say, you know, this is not a denominational table. It's not just for people that have certain backgrounds, but it's for anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And I say that every single time. And the reason I say you profess faith in Jesus Christ is because this is a proclamation of the gospel. If you've yet to give your life to Christ, then this is lost on you. Because when I share in this meal, I am proclaiming the lordship of Christ. And if you're here for the first time and you never give your life to Christ, that's great. But we want you to understand the truth behind what we're doing. It's a proclamation of the gospel. And then finally, it's an anticipation. Right? We're anticipating. He says, he says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A lot of times in our sort of western-minded churches, we never talk about the return of Christ. Right? kind of controversial we don't want to deal with things like words like rapture and post-millennial and amillennial and tribulations and all these things that's so i don't even know what to do with it so we never really preach on it and that's why we don't ever touch the book of revelation because we don't have to deal with that stuff the truth is jesus is coming back like it or not that is the truth of scripture however you think it's going to happen doesn't really matter because he's coming back and we never really talk about it but one of the great anticipations of the early church was that Jesus was going to come back. It's what they longed for. It's what they looked forward to. Every single book in the Bible comes close to mentioning it or at least alludes to the return of Christ in the New Testament. Always talking about Jesus' return. They believed that Jesus was going to come back because that's what Scripture promised. That's what these, the, the, Jesus was saying even about himself and even says it right here, until the Lord's return. In fact, in Matthew, he talks about, Jesus says, I won't drink of the fruit of this vine until I do it again with you in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about his own return. What are we anticipating? When you think about your own Christian life, do you really think about the return of Christ? Do you really think about what happens next? You're just thinking about getting through tomorrow. Have you ever met someone in deep struggle? I mean, deep, deep struggle, whether it's poverty, whether it's sin, whether it's addiction, whatever it is. There's something else that brings hope. And that is that this world is not the end. Right? I met a woman in, uh, let's see, where were we? We were in eastern Ukraine. Met a woman who had been literally kind of an indentured servant, a slave, if you will. Um, we have a different mindset for how the word slave works in our country because of our past. But s- some similarities there in terms of oppression and some things. But I met her and 
She had lived most of her life that way. No real hope for anything else. She was a believer. A missionary had come through and shared the gospel with her when she was 12. Her and her family were raised as Christians, but they were raised in an, an environment of oppression. And they were raised in an environment of, uh, well, of slavery, basically. Um, no real hope. The only hope was that someone would come buy them out. And, um, you know, there was no real hope for that. We sat there with them one day, this little missionary group that I was with, and she told us her story and her family story. And one of the things that she said was that the hope I have, the hope I have is that this world is not the end and that Christ will come back. And I pray that he comes back in my life, my lifetime. There's a longing and anticipation about Jesus' return. And as a church, we need to celebrate the fact that we believe Jesus will come back and he will right all this mess. Right? And then he will bring us into his glory. So there's a, a remembering, there's a, a uniting, there is a, uh, a proclamation, there's an anticipation. And there's a couple of things that are being affirmed in this meal as well. The first is that Jesus is affirming his love for you. Okay, listen to this. He says, this is my body, which is for you, right? Do this in remembrance of me. This picture of the bread broken, Jesus is broken, is a picture of how much Jesus loved you, that he went to the cross and died for all of your garbage, all of your mess, all of your sin, everything you've done and ever will do. When we take this meal, we're affirming how much God loves us. You are affirming how much God loves you, that he loved you even in your sort of state of messed up living enough that he went to the cross. Right? We're affirming that. We're also affirming our own faith in Christ. That God, I believe that you are big enough to rid me of my sin. That I trust you. And that my faith is in you. So you never thought all these things went into that meal. And so often in our churches, they're just habits. You know? And I've, been, I've worked in several churches now, and there's always controversy over when we do something different with this. Right, when we do it, when you have to come forward and we pass it out or what we're doing or the, we used wafers instead of bread and someone's always upset about it. Because we've turned it into ritual and not into an expression of an extravagant love. It shouldn't matter how we do it. What should matter is what we're doing. We're remembering, we are uniting, we are proclaiming, we are anticipating, we are confirming and being assured of God's love for us and our own faith in Christ. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't read the last two verses to you because they get a little serious, all right? Because there is a word of warning that goes with this, and he's warning the Corinthian church, and I want you to hear this because oftentimes we approach things really lightly when it comes to Scripture, and so we'll skip over these verses. Tell me the last time you heard your pastor preach on these. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bed and drinks the cup. When's the last time you've heard that kind of announced with communion? We like to skip that part because we don't know what to do with it. But there's a really true warning here. What Paul is saying to the church is he's saying, listen, what you are engaging in is powerful. Not because of the act, but because of what the act represents. And you shouldn't approach it in an unworthy manner because if you do, you literally are sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And unworthy here, don't think about in terms of action. Don't think about in terms of, you know, I have to be perfect because the truth is in Scripture, that's never the case. We are never perfect. But think about unworthy in terms of the condition of our heart. 
when we approach this table, when we engage in the things of God in a manner that is, that is unworthy, where our hearts aren't right, where we haven't been honest, where we're not approaching in humility, when we're living a lie, when we've turned truth into habit, we're sinning, plain and simple. And I always find this really powerful because I can count how many times, I mean, there are countless times I've celebrated and taken part in communion over my life as a follower of Christ without even a second thought as to what I'm doing, realizing that my life was full of sin. But when you look at these verses in, the, in, in Corinthians, what Paul's saying is, listen, the truth of Scripture, the truth of these things that we engage in, you've got to pay attention to. We don't play around with God. All right? When you do something like this, when we engage in worship together, and this is an expression of worship, we should examine our own hearts because you are coming before the Lord God, the deity of who God is. That's why I said last week or the week before, sin is not funny and cute. It is not something we struggle with or whatever in sort of a a tongue-in-cheek manner. It is death, and it is serious. And the only remedy we have is through Jesus Christ, and we're Paul is saying is examine your heart before you engage in the presence of God. I mean, this is a truth that is kind of woven all through Scripture. Do you remember in that moment where Peter first really met Jesus? They're standing on this boat. Peter's actually sitting there, and Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching this crowd on the side of the lake. All right, and he gets done. And he tells Peter that they're going to go fishing. Remember that whole kind of scenario? And Peter says, look, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Jesus says, look, just go fishing. He says, okay, fine. They go fishing. They throw the nets off. And they catch so many fish, the nets begin to break. And the text tells us that Peter realizes who he's in the presence of. And he falls to the ground at Jesus' feet. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In Scripture, when people come face to face with God... They recognize immediately who they're not. Worship, even our singing, even our opening of text, even communion, are expressions of our encounter with God. They're not to be taken lightly. We've got to examine our hearts and say, God, in what manner am I coming before you? And it's not just about this table. It's when we show up here in church and you sit here and you open your mouth and you go to sing and you are singing to the God of the universe, the God that breathed life into your very lungs. What is the condition of your heart as you sit here? It doesn't have to be perfect, but maybe it just needs to be right enough to say, God, I am broken and I need you. Honest enough to be humble. See, worthy is not about living right. It's about conditioning our hearts to understand who God is compared to who we are. And how many times have we showed up in church or even opened our own scripture, tongue-in-cheek, ritualistic, and walked away. What we're going to engage in this morning is powerful. It's not to be taken lightly, but neither is anything we do as a church. It's all about God's presence. It's all about what God did for us. So we don't lift up one thing and say, oh, this is super holy, right? But our hearts should be the same every time we approach God's presence. What if we came into worship with the same heart that we approached this table with? That God, today could be the first day of the rest of my life. Starting over all again. Renew my heart. Create a new heart within me, as Psalm will say. 
So all these things are wrapped up in this table, believe it or not. And I don't expect you to remember all those things every time we do this. But I, I needed the reminder. Because I can get up here and say some words and pray. And we can all share in this so we can get out of here by 12.05 or whatever and, and be done. But what a disservice to you. What a disservice to me. To recognize the truth of what we're really engaging in. So as I explained, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. He told them all kinds of really amazing stuff. And one of the things he told them was that uh, as he, after he washed their feet, he said, I want you to, to love each other in the same way as a new command I give you, right? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, by how you love one another, which is an amazing statement. He's saying, look, people will know you follow me by how you treat each other and how you love each other. What an awesome word for the church, right? What the greatest evangelistic tool we have is to love each other differently than the world loves. But he gives them all kinds of great instructions. Then he looks at them and he, and he takes this meal, these words. And he, after he gives thanks, he prays, and he thanks the Lord, and he takes that bread. And of the words that we used, he says, listen, this is my body, and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After that, he takes his cup and he says, This cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's a new covenant poured out for you. Then we take of this bread and we drink of this cup. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until what? Until he comes again. These words are not empty and hollow. They're Jesus' words himself. They're not made up. They're not fancy church words we use to explain things. These are words that Jesus himself spoke as he looked at the disciples. And this morning, we have the opportunity to remember and unite and proclaim and anticipate all of that truth, all wrapped up in this one meal that Jesus gave us as a way of living our relationship with Christ together. So this morning what we're going to do is uh, take communion in our kind of normal fashion, but I'm going to invite you to examine your heart beforehand. Maybe challenge you a little bit even if that's kind of not your thing, just to maybe look inwardly a little bit and just say, God, well, before I approach you, what do I just need to purge from my heart? Maybe you've never thought about communion in this way. Maybe it's just a really good rediscovery. But I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you when you've examined your heart and dealt with the Lord just to come forward. We'll have servers on both sides. We take communion by another super fancy word called intinction, which is just a really fancy way of saying take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and just move through the line. And you don't have to come down in any certain order just after you've sort of dealt with the Lord. Um, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to do that. But I invite you to take those words seriously that we examined and looked at this morning. Deal with your own heart. Maybe even walk through those little things, the remembering and the uniting and the proclaiming and the anticipation and just pray. Pray that God will give you a new perspective on this part of your Christian life and our life together. Let's pray.